Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream 128 Q&A. It is Saturday afternoon, rainy as all get out I here. I know, end of May, it's dark, it's dreary, it's ridiculous. There are a lot of things flowering. Two years ago, as we descended into COVID madness, I, as long-term viewers of uh, the Dark Horse live streams will remember, I brought in like... 25 or 30 cubic yards of a mixture of soil and mulch and um, rocks for the driveway as well and for the bioswale, um, but mostly various soils and composts and, and just a lot of plants. And last year they didn't flower so much, but this year they're actually flowering really nicely. They're and happy. now the rain is causing most of the blossoms to fall into the ground get eaten by slugs yeah luck of the draw i did notice while we had the windows it's now gotten chilly in here Um, but uh, while we had the windows open i noticed that because the maples are now all leafed out that if you close your eyes and you listen to it raining out there you know that sound at a field station in the tropics when it's raining really hard out and you can hear all of the drips on the big leaves Mm -hmm. sounds very different here in the winter Mm mm-hmm but uh, now we've got. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, we've got a, a, a largely, in, in the winter, it's an entirely uh, evergreen forest, obviously. Uh, and flies, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, the big leaf maples, which are the dominant deciduous tree here, uh, are fully leafed out, and the raindrops on them is distinctive. Mm-hmm. It's distinctive. So uh, when we ended our live stream just now, I took my phone out of airplane mode and found the following text from my mother, who has said, yes, I may share this. She says, FYI, I have already marked Michael Schellenberger on my California ballot, which I will turn in next week. Nice to know you agree with me. Hmm. So Nice. That's cool. Um, maybe the entire West Coast can get a grip. Wow, wouldn't it be something? If wouldn't he, that be something if, if we could just get a grip again? Yeah. Yeah. Getting a grip would be, yeah, I'd be yeah. for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, this week we have two questions from the Discord, uh, which, as you know, as 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 many of you know, uh, people get access to our Discord by joining either of our Patreons, and uh, each week they vote on their favorite question that they have that they want us to answer. And I said, because we've been away for a few weeks, give us two this week. So they've given us two. Mm-hmm. The first one is sociopaths are generally a menace to human society, but is there a reason that sociopathic traits have persisted? And might individuals who are intolerable by today's standards have been beneficial to our ancestors? Nice. Yeah. So I have uh, two things to say on this topic. One is I think we get sociopathy wrong. Um, So first of all, I would say sociopathy is probably adaptive. Psychopathy, and the distinction between them is not 100% clear, but is a extreme version of sociopathy probably isn't it's probably the malignant version but what i think we get wrong about sociopathy and just to be clear i mean you've said it i've said it we've all said it every evolutionary biologist said it a million times when you say adaptive you don't mean awesome you don't mean good for humans you don't mean good for society you don't mean we rah rah we all want more of that yeah no i don't mean any of those things (laughs) what i mean is that shaped by selection for a fitness enhancing purpose Um, So I'm saying psychopathy, probably not. Sociopathy, yes, but how so, right? Mm -hmm. A, I think we get sociopathy wrong because we tend to say that person is a sociopath and that person isn't a sociopath. The problem with that 
is that we all love these narratives where the mob boss is perfectly capable of ordering uh, the murders of people who he needs to disappear. And we say, oh, that's sociopath. But then the mob boss uh, has a deep commitment to his family. And the question is, is sociopathy something that needs a refinement so that we can talk about facultative sociopathy and are we all facultatively sociopathic with result to things with the reference to things that are so remote that we do not feel them personally i mean is that a possibility well and is it possible that um you know one of the distinctions you know a lot of ink has been spilled over the distinction between sociopathy and psychopathy and whether or not it's actually a meaningful distinction in all of this and uh given your invoking of facultativeness which is sort of biology speak for um, under some environmental conditions it happens under some under other environmental conditions it doesn't so for instance we talk about like facultative versus obligate pedomorphosis and salamanders do you or do you not metamorphose and turn into an adult looking form or do you not and do you retain all of your juvenile looking characteristics and some species obligate pedomorphosis you never lose your gills and your women between your feet and some facultative depending on what kind of environment you're in it might be better to metamorphose and move on to land or it might be better to retain a bunch of your larval characteristics and stay in the water. Facultative. Facultative sociopathy, um, which is what you're talking about as sort of a personality trait in which there might be conditions in which it is or is not more adaptive for you, even though it will still be bad for almost everyone around you. Um, maybe psychopathy could be understood as obligate sociopathy. Yeah, I agree that that's one way to do it, but I, I, I actually, the problem is that the distinction appears to be, you know, uh, experts in this will say that, um, you know, a sociopath is perfectly capable of being completely cold about something like murder, but they don't delight in it. The psychopath may delight in it, right? So there are two parameters. One of them is facultative versus obligate, and the other is how extreme this coldness is. I guess that sounds like, <clears throat> I don't, you know, I always wonder how good these categories are, right? But right, but that, but it sounds like that you know the the delights in it is just actually an addition of another kind of personality disorder. Yep, I, I right. Agree. Rather than you know that doesn't feel like farther along this. It's like this plus you know sadism. Well, yes, but it may be that it um, you take somebody who has this unusual coldness and you put them in an environment in which they get rewarded for using it as a tool yeah. and do they become the other speaking um, of the least cold least sadistic least sociopathic organism representative of the least sociopathic species on the planet yep here we have madison we have madison the mm -hmm. uh, the marvelous dog mm -hmm. um but here here's the other so i've made one argument here which is that we need some mechanism for dealing with people who are functionally sociopathic in one context but not another they may love their family they may be murderous mob bosses at work um but somehow those two things exist in the same character. The other thing, though, is that I believe that to the extent, even for obligate sociopaths or possibly psychopaths, if that's the way that taxonomy works out, there's a question about um, is the problem a novelty problem? In other words, maybe soldiers who have played a very important role in lineage well-being <coughs> are effectively sociopathic but pointed outwards. I've always suspected that sociopathy is a disorder because the environment causes it to emerge where it shouldn't be. Mm. But that if your soldiers were effectively um, engaging in that coldness in order to destroy an enemy that was a threat to you, you might feel very differently about them. 
right? And you might throw them a parade when they got home. And then that would also make some sense of the facultative because hopefully when mm -hmm. they get home, they're not that way about, you know, their fight over the, uh, you know, who... Eat the last piece of pizza. For example, I was thinking more of a fight with their neighbor over something involving the board. Hedge trimming? Hedge trimming, for example. <laughs> uh, right. We instantly have had <clears throat> no pizza in the house for a while, so this is in no way uh, apropos any ongoing discussion between us. No, no, we haven't. Um, anyway, you kind of get the idea, though. We need a richer concept of yep. sociopathy in order to have the discussion properly. Um, but yes, I think it shows the hallmarks of an adaptation, but it's not adaptive the way we see it. It shows up uh, haphazardly and very mm -hmm. destructively. And worst of all, it provides, in, the, in a market context, the freedom from shared but informal moral structures provides an advantage to those who have that capacity to deploy in market space. So what we have is a system that favors the elaboration of this trait where our communities would be much better off if actually that trait was costly when you deployed it at home. I don't mean in your home, but I mean at home, like not fighting an enemy on a battlefield. Yep. All right. Next question. Also from the Discord this week. <clears throat> you mentioned that you are worried about what might be coming in the fall. Can you say more about that? Are there things regular people should be doing now to prepare? Yeah. Um, I'm more worried than when I said that because now in addition to the intractable calamity that we have over Roe v. Wade and its possible elimination and all of the things that would flow from that. We also now have um, the Second Amendment back uh, in a active uh, role in our national conversation. But you skipped over the, the, the primary issue. Which you, like, the, 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 absent the last two years of COVID mis, dis, and malinformation from the authorities who would have us believe that it's us who are engaging in the mis, dis, and malinformation, um, and policy and all of this stuff. Absent that, even uh, the po the potential for Roe being overturned and the re-upping of discussion over over gun rights, um, and you know even midterms that are likely to be fraught after an election that brought into office someone who no one ever sees because is he even competent? All of this would probably not be sufficient to have you have made such a pronouncement. It's it's the COVID madness that um, puts everything in in a very tenuous tenuous position with a lot of people kind of going like see no evil, hear no evil. I forgot one. Speak no speak evil. Speak no evil, yeah. Um, and a lot of people sort of, you know, shouting into the wind going, but you can't forget what's going on here because they will they will march again. Yep. So there's COVID, which is not um, behaving seasonally the way one might expect. Um, there's the COVID madness, um, the governmental response to it and mm -hmm. the demonizing of individuals there's the possibility that something will supplant covid because people are sick and tired of it um and that it will be a new topic but same playbook but anyway <clears throat> and, oh and there's you know basically just um the midterm issue the fact that all of these things play into an environment in which the blue team in the u.s is back on its heels but has a number of these killer issues at its disposal and is going to play a very dirty game 
And so anyway, yes, I'm concerned about all of that. What can you do? Uh, somebody at the conference I was just at said something interesting. It was Nick Hudson, I believe, who is a, a very broad-minded private equity guy. Um, anyway, a very technically oriented, interesting thinker. And somebody asked him, wasn't me, somebody asked him, uh, what would you invest in in this, in this crazy moment? Mm. And he said, people, I would invest in relationships. Um, <clears throat> yeah, which uh, I thought was a very good answer. Um, I think the basic point is, and we've, we saw this, if you look backwards over COVID, you and I have said many times that people who had a reality check at home were in a very different situation than people who were isolated by virtue of the fact that they didn't have a significant other, right? Anybody who had to fit in and couldn't, you know, look somebody in the eye and say, this is crazy, isn't it? Um, was in a predicament. So that principle is, I think, extensible outwards. And to the extent mm -hmm. that you can get a group of people that are committed to trying to make sense rather than trying to leap to whatever conclusion is being handed them so that they can be, you know, at the head of the parade, that would be very, very worthwhile. Now, of course, there's also the other questions, you know. <coughs> <clears throat> what is the role of self-protection uh, in an environment where, you know, we now have mandates used to purge independent-minded people who will refuse immoral orders from uh, governmental enforcement structures. You know, there's that and there's, uh, you know, what, what resources allow you to endure uncertain times. And, uh, you know, it's possible that we should talk about those things at some point. But in general, I would just say stop assuming that what has typically worked is going to continue to work. We have seen those things all show signs of ricketiness. And um, to the extent that you have considered what makes you vulnerable and how to make yourself less vulnerable, I would say it's that moment. Yeah. So... For a few years, we've been we've been hearing about coming and then actual and then things are attributed to, but maybe they aren't actually about supply chain issues. Yeah, and um, that now is um, perhaps including food, and uh, somehow we've been told, and many people seem to be believing that this is all because of Putin. <laughs> it's like. Like I don't, I don't know who's believing that, um, who who must have been completely asleep, you know, completely brain dead for all of all of the time leading up to, was it February, of this year, um, when when Putin invaded Ukraine, um, but there's there's all sorts of things that we are being told to be worried about now that maybe we should have been worried about before, but now because there's a different cover story that doesn't have to do with insane COVID policy, but has to do with you know Russian strongmen, we're allowed to say yeah there might be a problem here. So, um, you know having the ability to to feed yourself under circumstances where you might not have previously been able to would likely be useful. Mm -hmm. All right, next question. It's a big one. It's not exactly a question. Childhood trauma, PTSD, healing, and recovery with an evolutionary lens, please. Mm. Love you guys. Never miss a week. All right. I've got a couple things. Okay. Um, <clears throat> one, I would say, and you know, there are people who know PTSD uh, 
well academically. I've, I've never studied it, but I have studied corollary stuff, stuff related to it. And it has always struck me that the interesting thing is that the mind can can adjust itself to a radical transition. And what it has trouble with is going back and unremembering this, right? So you can be taken to a battlefield and you can learn that there can be snipers anywhere and you can adapt to that. And then you come home and you try to go shopping and it's very hard, right? It's very hard not to be in the mindset of where are the snipers, right? Um, and that's also in, presumably hard to care about things like which brand of milk you buy. Right. It's just very distorting because for one thing, you, I mean, and actually this goes a little bit to, I think, what you were experiencing out in the world today and what I saw a lot of when I was traveling last week. But mm. there's something about watching the other humans not quite aware of some aspect that you think you see and it's it's very disorienting. Yeah, we, did, we didn't talk about that uh, earlier, did we? But I, I came home from having gone to a farmer's market and then just walked around a little bit this morning and said it just it feels like this is what people maybe think they were looking like three years ago before COVID ever hit, but it doesn't it doesn't feel right. It feels like people are sort of reverted to a slightly angry, slightly tribal, slightly mean-spirited way of engaging with one another. Um, <clears throat> and yet it also feels even more fragile than it did before. And one of the things that I have, that I've always done, uh, whenever I travel, but especially in the non-developed world, uh, is smile at strangers. And you know, th there's there's contexts in which this is not necessarily advised. And of course, uh, a woman alone doing this is a different situation than a woman with other people or a man doing it. But um, it is almost all the time that I have done this, it has been met with a smile in return. It immediately makes, you know, it, it just creates a bond that is fleeting because then you walk past one another, but you have just interchanged something real with another human being and conveyed to them, hey, I'm, I'm here too. You're there. I see you. I don't hate you, right? And the way that people are walking around right now is just so full of glower, so full of meanness. And um, already, it feels like it's harder to get people to smile. Well, I think they are, <clears throat> in some sense, suffering. You know, Rachel Maddow has done much wrong, including slander us. But um, she did us a favor revealing her own anguish at the moment when they were told, wrongly it turned out, that vaccinated folks weren't going to have to wear their masks. And she, you know, wrestled on camera with the idea, oh, my God, the good people are going to be the ones without the masks. That's going to be weird. Which snitches do we trust? Right, exactly. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm imagining is that at the moment, you don't have a reliable indicator of what team other people are on, do you? Mm -hmm. And you know that at any moment, the team thing could come back. And the point is, I think people are looking around with a certain amount of suspicion. Yeah. And what if I smile back at that person and she turns out to be a Nazi? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so anyway, the fact that, you know, the thing has done such a good job of demonizing your fellow citizens and now you think they're out there, but, you know, they're no longer doing you the service of, you know, calling attention to themselves by wearing their masks or whatever, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> is bound to increase that. So anyway, uh, childhood trauma, PTSD, oh, yeah. healing and recovery, all okay. of it. So PTSD is like the mind, which can mature into a new reality, but has a hard time unlearning the lesson of that maturing and that trips a lot of people up. I know there are a couple kinds of PTSD and that this is only one of them I'm describing, but I think it's the classic one. Mm -hmm. 
The other thing that I would say is trauma is the analogy between uh, a physical injury and a mental injury is actually a pretty good analogy, right? It's pretty robust. And I would say the thing that I don't hear said is there's a difference between a wound and a scar and neither of them is great, but you definitely want as quickly as possible to take that wound and scar over. The scar is the thing that lets you move on. You may move on with a limp, but the point is it is not an ongoing vulnerability. And at all costs, what you don't want to do is act in such a way that keeps your wound open, which is a lot of people's instinct because the wound garners sympathy and you know it, you, you, you learn how to live with it and maybe the point is you you become addicted to it. Yeah, you, you get addicted to the sympathy, to the victim status. And even if that's not the case, even if you are really trying to be honorable and, and do the right thing and you want to heal in all this, the fact is that as you are healing, and we're talking mostly metaphorically here, but this is true for physical wounds as well, in the healing process from something deeply traumatic, there is a relatively long period during which you are still wrestling. You are not yet the self that you will become. You are not as, as strong as you were, and you are not yet as strong as you will become. You are still actively healing, and therefore some part of you is going into actively making yourself better. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it's not visible still. Yeah. And so keeping that badge visible, keeping the wound visible so that you have the flag on you, so that you don't have to constantly be explaining, oh my God, like I'm actually still wrestling with this thing. I'm sorry, I'm slow. I'm sorry, I'm like whatever it is. Um, you can you can point to a thing without having to feel like you're justifying it. This is the wrong instinct, um, but it is hard. It is hard to go through that. You know, it can be depending on the type of injury we're talking about, you know, weeks, months, years, decades of actually i'm still handicapped i'm 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 still i'm still working with this additional effort that i have to put into getting better and that's not visible and um and it almost it can feel like a deception to to put forward the like nope i'm good yeah and yet the and yet that is almost always going to be a more effective way of moving through the world than trying to keep uh the visible sign of injury uh, alive. Yeah, it's just it, it can't help but be a mistake because yeah. the vulnerability that flows from having the wound open is is uh, is a hazard. Um, I want to pick up on the <clears throat> thing you said about the uh, months, years, decades. Mm. This is something I've actually noticed about physical healing that I, you know, I bet dollars to donuts that it uh, it fits the psychological healing as well, and I think I've experienced it, which is there are wounds, there are injuries where you heal in some sort of primary way, right? And then if you pay attention, right? Like, so I, I had a surgery on my knee. I had my ACL repaired after a, a, a ultimate uh, Frisbee injury. After a dude dove into your knee. Yep, dove into my knee, busted my ACL. Mm -hmm. Didn't even say he was sorry. But did he catch the disc? I remember actually who it was who was catching the disc. I've now forgotten. I used to have this vividly in mind, and I've now forgotten. Yeah. But um, anyway, I don't remember. But um, <clears throat> the point is, busted my ACL. Mm -hmm. That's a wound. I then had surgery to repair it. More wound. Mm -hmm. I then healed, but there was a lot of ways in which that leg wasn't quite up to snuff. And one thing in particular, which was 
my whole knee was numb. I couldn't feel it. And so it was very uncomfortable. If I kneeled down to do something, the two knees felt so different that it was just really disorienting. Um, now, I couldn't tell you which knee it was <laughs> for sure. I can figure it out, right? If I feel around my knee, oh, it's, it's that one. It's my left. But um, but the point is the trajectory, you know, there was a one-year trajectory, there was a five-year trajectory, and then there was a long-term trajectory. And, you know, only the long-term one really involved my being essentially back where I was. Yeah. Now, I've, I've had, obviously, a number of incidents like this, and I'm recalling yeah, maybe maybe it's of no interest here, but I'm recalling a boat accident on March 30th of 2016. Uh, you know, acute, you know, life-threatening and um, you know, extraordinary in every regard, threatening you know, pain, pain and injury, and you know, were a number of acute recoveries, and you know, the actual the actual physical wounds healed, and you know, even some of the soft tissue, which I would told would never was told would never heal without surgery, did heal, and then there were more things discovered that I didn't get care for, and I found a number of people to care for various things, and I'm still not a hundred percent, of course, um, but I actually spent this would have been almost three years later like February, January, February of 2019, I went and spent like many, many hours over the course of two days at uh, this Korean women's spa uh, in Tacoma, Washington, which has uh, these far infrared rooms and steam saunas and the hot plunge and the cold plunge and, you know, just so, so much basically sauna. And I was driving home in the rain. It was dark. It was raining, driving back home to Portland. And I was actually on uh, the phone with my oldest, dearest friend talking to her. And at first I thought it was because I was talking to her. And then I realized this is the first time in almost three years that I haven't actively been in pain. Mm. And I had stopped actively noticing that there was always pain. And, That's interesting. It's, yeah. like, it's like uh, when you're in a noisy environment, but it's really like yeah. noise. And yeah. then it turns off and it's like, Wow, I didn't even realize there was noise. Yeah, I, I had was, accommodated. Yeah. I had acclimated, <clears throat> and um, you know, some some of that pain still comes back sometimes. But you know, the the background level of like, nope, that's just going to be with you, and then like step function off. Wow. Yeah. And so you know, the 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 degrees the degrees of healing, the fact that some of them are slowly declining, and some of them really do act as these step functions. Like you know, an acute injury is a step function in the other direction. Um, but usually we don't imagine that the healing process is, but sometimes it, it too can be even without like surgical intervention. Yep. And I would say that this is one more, you know, as if we needed one more, but it's one more of these reasons to be very cautious about complex systems, mm -hmm. right? You know, you intervene in a complex system. You don't know how many things have been delicately balanced. You know, if your pain is really not useful to you, if it's not warning you about something then the body may have caused you to lose awareness of it and the last yeah. thing you want to do is disrupt that and suddenly be unable to ignore it right mm -hmm. um you know who knows what for example noises are being canceled right you know i have tinnitus um from busted in eardrum but most of the time i don't notice it but anything that caused me not to be able to ignore it would drive me crazy right mm -hmm. so it's uh there's there's all sorts of stuff, and you have no idea how beautifully it's functioning, even when you're broken and, you know, you've been thrashed by a boat in your case, yeah. right? You have no idea how many of those balances are being maintained. Right. Um, and, you know, in your case, 
it's lucky that you got to this new new place where actually something that you had been um, adaptively ignoring uh, was actually better enough that you could you know stand down that like, circuit yeah 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 all right the us versus them right versus left reason versus woke etc thing doesn't seem like it will ever resolve each side only seems to buckle down more in their views whatever the issue do we ever get out of this here i mean this is such a tragedy because i do think the way out of this is so freaking easy but people are going to have to surrender some of their basic assumptions that they're Mm. too in love with right i mean and you and i have experienced this how glorious was it to discover that all sorts of people that we had been told were real living demons just weren't, that they were decent people and we had some different values and we had a lot of overlapping values and we saw things differently, but there was room to talk. And um, I think that, you know, I I used to say, I haven't said in a long time, but that to the extent that you have bigotry of any kind, that you yourself in your head have bigotry. Do you have bigotry? And mm-hmm. I don't I don't mean inherently racial bigotry, just any kind of bigotry, any mm-hmm. you know, prejudgment that isn't justified by actual facts, right? You can give yourself an effective raise, right? Like imagine you can just give yourself a raise, wouldn't you? Well, get rid of your goddamn bigotry, right? If you get rid of your bigotry, it's like getting a raise because suddenly you're not worried about people who aren't actually you know, don't require your worry in order Always to looking protect. for the stars on their bellies. <laughs> right. So anyway, my point would be to the extent that both sides appear to be out of their gourds, mm. that they both believe people on the other side are possessed of the deepest characterological flaws, right? You know, when it comes to the politicians, they're probably right. When it comes to the rest of us, what are the chances? Right? What are the chances? People are basically the same. They want basically the same stuff. To the extent that people seem so mysterious in their beliefs and desires that they don't even deserve human compassion, that's somebody's, somebody has lied to you and made you feel this. That's not yep. the way people are for the most part. So No, it's active dehumanization, and you should wonder who, who wins by you having that in your head about other humans. That's the key question. Who wins by you believing that and therefore what do you i mean i used to do this almost as a i don't want to trivialize it but almost as a game right mm-hmm. there are lots of bridges you're not supposed to be able to cross mm-hmm. it's interesting to figure out how many of them you can cross and what you have to say to yeah. you know to get a, an embrace on the other side and <clears throat> anyway you know idw was an experiment in exactly this mm-hmm. and but i mean you used to do it I, here in Portland, it's never happened, but um, in Olympia and in Ann Arbor, um, the two places we lived prior to here, uh, we would occasionally have Jehovah's Witnesses show up at the door. And um, you, unlike, I, I have to imagine almost everyone else they ever had opened the door, would invite them in yep. and talk to them yes. and um, offer to exchange literature. And so you would <laughs> offer the selfish gene to them in exchange for you taking their literature and suggest that they come back after a while uh, with the promise that you had looked at some of what uh, they had given you if they had also looked at some of what you had given them. And I don't know if any of them ever came back. They did. They did. They did. No, I had repeat conversations. Interestingly, it was easier with the Jehovah's Witnesses than Mormons. I don't know why. Mm. But um, maybe because the Mormons tended to be younger. and yeah. uh, <clears throat> They were on their like constrained work. Like this is their, their 
Oh, there's a name for it. I can't remember at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Service, whatever they're doing. Yeah. But, um, <clears throat> but, you know, look, if you let a Jehovah's, I mean, first of all, I, I never did this under false pretenses. I would always say, look, you got your work cut out for you. You're talking <laughs> to an evolutionary biologist and I know what it is that we disagree on. However, there's an awful lot we might agree on. Um, but if you let them know, right, that you know that Jehovah's Witnesses were persecuted by the Nazis, right, it, it warms their heart to discover that anybody remembers that feature of history, right? right? It gets forgotten. They hear all about the Holocaust and nobody remembers that they were on, on the losing side of right. that horrible chapter. So anyway, there's lots of ways in. Um, and I swear it is the most interesting in terms of a skill that pays back in in terms of warm feelings about humanity, mm-hmm. that skill, just being able to figure out how you're going to talk to somebody who is not similar to you, is it's a total winner. And um, anyway, so the answer to your question is, I think that this exists out there for us at any time we want to figure out how to avail ourselves of it. Mm-hmm. And the problem is we have to shut down the people who know that they will lose if we start seeing eye to eye, mm-hmm. right? If we start paying attention to what the Hidden Tribes report described as the exhausted middle, this vast group of people who mostly agree on where we should be headed and what that should look like, who can't find each other because we've been told that the other half of that vast exhausted middle is actually demons, right? So it's there. We just yeah. have to figure out how to do it. So let's. I'm reminded, I can't remember now, it's been long enough since we were at Evergreen that I don't remember the framing, but there was like five foci and six expectations, right? And I don't remember, and they were honorable, they were good. And one of them in one of these lists, you know, five foci of an Evergreen education, six expectations of an Evergreen graduate, something, something. One of them was, it was either teaching or reaching across significant differences. Mm-hmm. And... I remember thinking for a long time, but especially as of May 23rd, 2017 and beyond, almost no one here seems to be trying to do this. Yep. Um, there is an awful lot of we have the truth and we are the only arbiters and owners of the truth and all who disagree with us shall be shut down permanently. Uh, but this actually reaching across significant differences, extending a hand in friendship, in openness, in let me share with you anything, is, uh, of course, has to be the way forward. Yep. Next question. I bought Douglas Murray's book, The War in the West. He labels the enemy as Marxists. Others say communists or technocratic fascists and so on. It's hard to fight an enemy that has no name. Yeah. That's it. That's the question. Um, <clears throat> this is true. There are certainly elements of what we face that are familiar. I mean, you know, for example, we talked in the main podcast about the fact that public-private partnership is, uh, you don't have to squint at it very hard to see the relationship to fascism. On the other hand, I think fascism in general comes from government, right? Kicking the private sector into agreement um, and moving forward. Um, but in this case, it's the reverse. Now, somebody will probably correct me historically and they'll say, no, it's always the corporate side that drives it. I'll be interested to discover that. But <clears throat> nonetheless, you can have differences, right? Are these Marxists? Yeah, they appear to be. They've got some differences, right? 
even Marxists agree that uh, we have differential contributions to make, and these uh, radical neo-Marxist types appear to believe that all appearances of differences in capacity are the result of some Jedi mind trick from the dark side, or I don't know what. But And yet some <clears throat> of the founders of BLM um, acknowledge that they are sort of trained as and working in the sort of image of Marxism. Right. Yeah. I mean, so. look, you know, it depends how, how much precision you need. Right. If you don't need that much precision, then yes, they're in that very ballpark and the flaws are the very same and um, we don't have to worry too much about it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I feel like there is... There is an empty niche for someone to actually try to carefully build the taxonomy in which, you know, maybe it's a Venn diagram than a taxonomy of like, actually, of all of these terms, um, how, how much overlap is there? And to what degree is there meaningful distinction between them? And to what degree are we, is, is the understanding of what we are working with in society enhanced by drilling down on those differences? Okay, I agree. I also think, as always, <clears throat> that these questions have an evolutionary dimension that is never included. And sure. so if we take, you know, I would say communism is evolutionarily unstable, right? That's mm -hmm. why it goes through the pattern that, you know, tends to, um, you know, end with uh, starvation. I thought it had just never been done right. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. Um, but here's the thing. Well, what about China? Seems pretty durable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but how communist is it, right? It seems to have sort of right. pruned the communism away from the authoritarianism, <laughs> and the authoritarianism actually works pretty good. And, you know, <laughs> frankly, it's capitalist facing outwards, and mm -hmm. it's authoritarian facing inwards, and it is, you know, Precious nominally, yeah. yeah, nominally Marxist. But, yeah. you know, it's found a formula, which I'm afraid is a very functional formula for getting into the future. <laughs> Minos, Marxists in name only. <laughs> Minnows. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like it. I like that a lot. All right. Um, what do you make of the sudden outbreak of hepatitis in children that test positive for adenovirus? Are anti-vaxxers seeing turtles in clouds, or could there be a relationship to the adenovirus vector vaccines? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I, th I think... It is very likely that this is related to the adenovirus vaccines. It is not certain. It could be a coincidence. There are certainly lots of adenoviruses that circulate. Um, <clears throat> but Well, I also, I guess I don't know in the U.S. anyway. Uh, there's only one adenovirus vectored vaccine that is available at all, and I don't think it's authorized for children at all. So J&J isn't available to children. Right. I'm not sure that that's what we're seeing here. Right. In other words, I, I I agree, but this this the way this is phrased sounds like uh, sounds like this is about kids who've gotten adenovirus vaccines and are now, uh, and so like I I don't I don't that think doesn't happens. seem to me to be a plausible mechanism at least in those countries. I don't know like if in other places J and J or AstraZeneca is authorized for children. I don't think so, but I don't remember. I don't, I don't think remember. that's what's most likely. Here. Okay, I think it is more likely that. Um, we engineered an adenovector, and that adenovector has interacted with wild adenoviruses in some way, a recombination event or something like it. Mm. Um, and therefore, that we have effectively, you know, this welcome to complex systems lesson is a tough one for people. But, yep. uh, but the point is, look, you intervened in a complex system and 
frankly, I didn't see this one coming. But um, yeah. but part of that system is there is an ecology of adenoviruses out there, and you are introducing something that you've built for a purpose, but it interacts with those others in some way. Now, I don't know how readily they recombine. Yeah, for me, there's just like there's enough black boxes there. It's like okay, how readily they you know how readily the lab type is going to recombine with the wild type, and then get out of you know, get out into the world and then infect a child. Like there's a whole, there's a whole lot of. Right. But, but I guess the point is uncertainty. All you need is an evolutionarily stable strategy or something somewhat better um, to, you know, it only needs to encounter the opportunity for the uh, combination of characteristics once. Mm -hmm. And then the point is if it is an effective uh, union of those things, then it will do what it's going to do. So mm -hmm. very hard to track down. <clears throat> yep. And again, if I've got something wrong here, I'd be very curious to hear what it is. Indeed. Uh, love the show. Been listening for a while. I've been wondering if you are aware of the work of Alan Savory and his book, Holistic Management. Nope. I am not. I am not. Is male-female pair bonding truly the best way to raise kids, or is it only best because we've structured society around such pairings for historical reasons? Shouldn't the priority be ensuring that you have loving role models? Yes and yes. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, the priority should be ensuring that you have loving role models, for sure. And um, if you have one loving role model, that is certainly better than zero. And if you have five loving role models who actually have your best interests at heart uh, and they're all male or all female, that's terrific. It's much harder to maintain stability at the social level or stability at the financial level when you have a lot or, or only one, respectively. And um, there is, and we've talked about this before, um, I think at least one potential advantage to having uh, a male and a female role model over having two male versus two or, or two female role models, which is just um, that every child grows up in the world, um, trans rights activists notwithstanding with all of the bullshit that they are proclaiming about what sex is, in which there are two sexes and there are men and there are women. And so having at least you know one person in your world who is an adult who is of each of the two sexes uh, is very useful as you develop your model of the world. So um, if, you know, if you are growing up with two dads or if you're growing up with two moms, it would be very useful for those two dads to have at least one uh, female friend around who is present enough for your kid, for the kid to, you know, see what it's like to be an adult woman. And of course, the opposite applies if you're um, two moms to have an adult man around. So I would add another value to the uh, traditional male-female couple, which is it also models the kind of relationship that the child is most likely to have, mm -hmm. right? Chances are a child's straight, then having a model of that relationship is also valuable in addition to just having a model of what a, an adult man and an adult woman are like. Um, but I would say, look, there's bound to be a hierarchy of um, good structure. <clears throat> sorry. Cold's getting me good structures for parenting, right? Mm -hmm. A highly functional male female couple has those two advantages that we've just 
described, right? It's probably best, all else being equal, and that's the key, all else being equal, it's probably best for those two reasons. A dysfunctional heterosexual couple is probably inferior to a gay couple that's got their shit together. For right? sure, or all of the other functional things. Right? Well, you know, then there's a question about how a couple versus a single parent, right? A single parent is hobbled by the fact that they don't have you know, that they're stretched really thin almost no matter what they do. Stretch really thin, but able to provide consistency as opposed to a really dysfunctional couple, either straight or gay, uh, that is sending very distinct and opposing um, feedback into the kid's head is going to, you know, perhaps make that kid anti-fragile, but certainly not help them develop a, you know, coherent sense of what makes sense in the universe if their two parents, um, regardless of what sexes they are, um, are effectively fighting at each other through the child. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a uh, well-adjusted, highly functional single parent, probably better than a fighting couple. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you know, you could list yeah. all of these things. And, you know, actually, the heterosexual couple ain't the top of that heap either, right? We've got yes. several versions of like an isolated heterosexual couple right. compared to any other structure that's embedded in uh, some sort of functional community, yep. right? Where there are grandparents around, yep. cousins, etc. So I don't know what this looks like. We're just doing this on the fly. Mm -hmm. But you could probably figure out, you know, in big font at the very top, it should say all else being equal because right, that's right. the key thing. But all else being equal, you could probably do the hierarchy of which of these things is likely to be best for the kid, yeah. you know, and at the bottom of it, you would have, um, you know, no parents, mm -hmm. right? Foster care or worse, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, something like that. Yeah. How do you make someone think? They seem scared of everything, including thinking. <clears throat> I don't know who the they is there, but it's it could be a lot of people. Yeah, this is what we used to specialize in. I guess we still specialize in it, but the, yeah. the techniques are different. Yeah, when we actually knew the people yeah. in the classroom. I would say what you mean by think is not the under the surface, I'm unaware of why I have this intuition about that thing. What you mean by think presumably is the conscious cognitive mm -hmm. process. And the way you get somebody to do that is you cause their mind not to be able to easily categorize something or reconcile it. In other words, the conscious mind is there to process phenomena that can't be dealt with on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And so the answer to how you get them to think is you deliver things to them that they know that they can't answer quickly and that force them in order, you know, not to have, you know, be in the uncomfortable situation of not knowing what to say or whatever. Mm to grapple with the question anew. So I used to call this throwing errors. You want to get their mind to throw errors. And if you can get them to throw an error, you know, it can be a joke. It can be a riddle, right? It can be a paradox. But anything that causes the mind to hiccup and say, wait, you know, anything like that will do the trick. Yeah. No, for sure. And I think this is one of the places where social media completely fails us. Um, because not having any accountability, being you, know, you can't, you can't, get anyone to come to account um, if they have time to, um, if they can just walk away and, you know, they, they feel no embarrassment about like, I don't know how to respond to that. They can just yell at you in response. Yep. That's true. Yeah, actually you're right. Social yeah. media um, by virtue of the asynchronousness of it, 
and by virtue of the way it um, frees you, you know, it's awkward interpersonally if you're sitting with somebody and they pose a question to you and you really don't know the answer to it and you yeah. pretend you do or you don't say anything. Those are all, you know, the social pressure will cause you to react, but yeah. not so on Twitter. Yeah. Um, this question, it's not it's not at the top of the list, but it came in twice, so I'm going to ask it, but I, don't have, I actually have no idea who he's referring to. He, I don't know. It says, hello, Brett and Heather, reconsider your previous support of a certain individual? And I don't know what, I, I don't know if it's, if they're talking about someone political or I honestly have no idea what it's referring to. I have to, a so, clue who that's a reference yeah, to. So if you want to write in again and say who you're talking about, um, we'll answer the question. Yeah. Something transpired that we don't know about? I don't know. Uh, well, it came in twice at different moments, so... Um, Okay, next question. Is it not possible that the argument that psych meds cause violence is misattributing violence to medications when it is likely the case that troubled individuals are more likely to be prescribed those drugs in the first place? Broken people use more meds, but generally meds aren't what broke them. I think it is true uh, that broken people use more meds and that therefore you cannot simply uh, see that um, broken people and meds go together and therefore claim that the meds are what broke them because presumably mostly people are not prescribed meds unless there is something to prompt that in the first place. But um, look at the book <clears throat> Anatomy of an Epidemic, I think is what it's called, um, by Whitaker, and uh, and look at the evidence that he compiles about what is actually happening with regard to many of these psychotropic medications that are being prescribed to people and how and how ruined it makes them. And I'm not talking about violence specifically here. Um, I think that is a, that is a subcategory about which I know less. Um, but there is ample evidence that many of the prescription drugs that we have been prescribing to people um, in order to quote unquote help with mental health are actually promoting and in large measure causing the mental health crisis that we now find ourselves in. Yeah, I will say the evidence on violence is actually better than you're imagining. You're imagining that it's a loose correlation and actually these things have been studied more uh, uh, in a more rigorous way than you're thinking. So do take a look at Chris Martinson's podcast from yesterday in particular, mm. uh, drill down on, there's a paper uh, in PLOSP, Public Library of Science, um, in which the particular compounds in question are analyzed, and you can see which types of drugs it is. So and Chris Martinson, who is himself has a PhD in toxicology, yeah, he's a toxicologist, right? uh, does this yesterday. He's, he's in exactly he's on exactly this topic. Here. Oh. And the evidence is <laughs> pretty compelling, including some stuff that... Uh, does separate out the effect you're talking about, like people who have never had these violent thoughts mm. who suddenly about being put on these drugs do have them and then can't shake them for days to months. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so there is something going on and it's, uh, um, it's more than just a correlation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, says a guy named Tom, I think that Nina Jankowitz was the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters. The destroyer in ludicrous form. Yeah. Yeah. Nina Jankowitz, who was the uh, now dethroned minister of mystis or malinformation. I don't even know what her supposed title was, but uh, she probably ought not to put out that video uh, singing as if she was Mary Poppins. Um, but 
better for all the rest of us that she did. Yes, but even the uh, the exit, you know, the headline on the article, primary article that reported on this was like, um, you know, disinformation board um, sunk by, by disinformation, disinformation. by right wing trolls and, or something. Right, and yes. so you know, the article <laughs> itself is disinformation. It's right, like, you know what we need right now is a disinformation. Oh, what we need is to take two mirrors and put them right opposite each other. Right, and then we need see if they uh, blow each other up with the infinite right, regress. We'll put a speaker and a microphone right across from each other, and we'll feed the yeah. It, it's it's incredible. It is incredible indeed. Microplastics. Come on up. Fine. Microplastics. Are they, there he is. Mm-hmm. Microplastics. Are they a major issue for us? Can evolution handle it? What can we do to protect ourselves and a society about this? Yes, they're a major issue for us. Yep. Um, evolution's never seen anything like it before. Uh, and uh, it is not clear what what our way out is. Well, I think it is sort of clear, which is, yeah, I mean, it's not clear how we get there. There is no getting there. But mm-hmm. you got to stop making this stuff in a way that yeah. it ends up in the environment, right? Either you need some sort of a closed cycle mm-hmm. where every time you manufacture some of this stuff, its end point where it gets recovered safely is known, mm-hmm. or you need to stop making it altogether, and then the world will stop grinding it up into tiny little fragments and distributing it where we breathe it in and eat it and all the other things that happen. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> It will eventually exhaust itself. Now, there's a huge amount of it out there. It's not going to happen quickly. Um, but the key thing would be, you know, and this is the truth for so many of the major issues, right? You've got an issue of what to do about the people who, you know, have autism, right? Or mm-hmm. are, you know, need orthodontia or any of these things, right? These are good questions. But a better question is, hey, let's figure out what to do about those people. Let's also figure about what's causing this so that we can stop it yes right stopping creating more people who are in the situation that you can't quite figure out what to do about is always a good idea indeed okay um how is it that social media algorithms will flag anything related to COVID 19 but they can't flag a crazy 18 year old in texas Uh, that's a very interesting question um it does feel like um, although asking for algorithms to flag individuals is a slippery slope, uh, we clearly have the technological chops for a lot of things that we're not doing. Yes, and in each of these cases where you have somebody go off the rails, there's more than just sort of social media stuff, right? Your friends and this, you know. The, right. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, the killer in Uvalde. Um, you know, cut his own face up, right? I know that. Yeah, he cut his own face up, um, you know, for kicks, apparently, right? That's a pretty unusual behavior. You don't say. Um, yeah, I do say. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were there were other flags and, you know, the, the I mean, problem... there, there is always the issue, just like you were talking about with regard to the police. Like, you know, you... You don't want a lot of people who are going through something and are just fine to be hassled by the authorities. And you also don't want to have the people who are going through something and aren't going to be just fine to not be hassled. And there are going to be errors. And which set of errors does society prefer to make? Right. But then there's also this difficult issue here, which is background checks do ask you about mental disorders. Mm -hmm. 
young person, an 18 year old, oh, right, his birthday, right? has had less time for such things to show up in the system. But to the extent that they have, you might put a higher priority on it. And then this also raises the question. Yes, many many yes. people have noticed that almost all of these um, mass shootings yeah. involve men below the age of 25. Right. Okay. And many people have suggested maybe your right to bear arms shouldn't begin until 25. Now, I don't think constitutionally you can do that without mm -hmm. major surgery. Yeah. But it does, I mean, A, there is this question, right? As you know, I'm in the process of trying to get a motorcycle license. It's approximately 70 times harder than even getting a concealed carry permit, right? The, the degree of um, scrutiny by the state mm -hmm. is very small for guns and rightly substantial for, for a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. um, Not rightly greater for a motorcycle, but rightly substantial for a motorcycle. Rightly substantial, mm -hmm. right. They don't want you operating a motorcycle, even though you're primarily a danger to yourself. Entirely, yeah, but you but put your you you put other people at risk of killing you if you're incompetent yeah, in a you, way that you don't if you're you put you put other people at less risk of killing you if you're incompetent if you're in a car. Right, and um, a motorcyclist can cause a car accident that would put other people in danger. Yeah. But no, nonetheless, the point is, there should be we should be able to agree that your right to have a firearm does not necessarily mean your right to easy access where somebody who does not have the proper characterological characteristics um, can get one and then haul off and kill a bunch of people. You should be put through a, you know, a course where you actually demonstrate that you know how to, how to treat this object safely and, and the like. So we could, A, there's the question of what we can do about the age issue how the mm -hmm. Second Amendment is interpreted in light of the fact um, that uh, you have protected rights that maybe a sober person would recognize um, shouldn't kick in until you're 25 or should yes. kick in in a limited way. Yes. Um, <clears throat> no, I mean, I, I mean, and this is this is another thing that the insanity, insane discussion around that's supposedly around trans rights is actively obscuring young men are the people who are who are the most likely to be violent in society yep in, across are. every domain and you know claiming now that there are you know women raping people and like like okay yes that very occasionally can happen somehow but like for god's sake why would we confuse this issue right why would we actively choose to become confused about something that every society throughout history has known and no it's not misandrous to ident to say that nor is it transphobic to say that it's simply true and we can honor amazing masculinity and also say and that toxic shit you're doing no no yep. no 100 percent. yeah uh, thoughts? Oh wait, there was a, there were another. You're not gonna say prayers. No, I'm not. Um, I'm gonna go to that one after. But there was another uh, gunish one. <clears throat> oh, a couple. Um, guns. This is written with a few words missing. I think. How about guns? Twenty-one years old have access to like alcohol, except for military personnel. So that's sort of just in keeping with what you had said, 25, 21, um, you know, increasing the age. I don't know. I don't think the Bill of Rights specifies an age. No, it doesn't. But the problem is it's not specifying an age probably protects you, your right to have them 
from 18 because, you know. Why? Why wouldn't the gun control folks then just at the age of, you know, 103? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I don't... I don't know anything about this history or this law, uh, but I don't know on what basis uh, the the legal age to drink is variable by states and on what basis that has been decided and why, for instance, uh, apparently if you're in the military, you can drink if you're under 21, um, even in states where it's 21. Well, I don't know anything about that, but I would say, you know, there is no constitutional right to drink and so that's why this is a problem Um, but at a practical level on the other but there's a constitutional right to bear arms you know well-regulated militia etc etc but then why 18 right like you know we're we're establishing some boundary so so again like i have have no idea you can own them you can't buy them well i don't know i don't know enough i don't know enough about it okay. but uh, but yeah. i will say i think you get into if you if you decide well there's no constitutional you know right yeah. at 18 then of course yeah, you yeah, just yeah. stepped on the slippery slope yeah yeah um and here's uh, i'll come back um yeah here are a couple of more guns questions and there are only a few questions left so i'll try to get to all of them <clears throat> um in canada we have cool off periods licenses and background checks for guns thoughts well, we have background checks. Yeah. And we have licenses. We have licenses um, for some. We have background checks, and then we have licenses for certain things yeah. like suppressors. Yeah. Um, um, we do not, I don't think, have cool-off periods. Well, there, no. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, I can only talk about Oregon because I've seen it. Yeah. In Oregon, if you're... And this is going to be widely variable by state. Yes. Yeah. But I've, all states have background checks? Yes. All states have I background checks. I think that's checks. federally mandated. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, if in Oregon, well, especially if you have a concealed carry permit, mm-hmm. that is effectively like TSA pre <coughs> for gun purchases. You've gone through some scrutiny ahead of time. Once you have your concealed carry, it becomes easier to buy future guns. It, you The mm-hmm. chances, so when you buy a gun... Whether you buy it online and it gets delivered to what's called an FFL, which is a licensed gun dealer. Mm-hmm. So you cannot, if you buy a gun online, they don't send it to you, yeah. right? And what, what is a gun is carefully defined. There's some part of a gun that is essential. You can buy the other parts without a problem. Mm-hmm. But the part that is deemed the gun has a number and it is delivered if you order it or if you buy it in a shop, um, the FFL then runs the background check. So they're trained mm-hmm. to run the background check. They submit your name to a computerized system, and then it either comes back, you passed, mm-hmm. or you're in the queue. If you're in the queue, they send you home, and then they give you a call when you pass, or presumably if you don't pass, they give you a call and say you didn't pass, and they send it back to wherever it came from. Mm-hmm. And if you, know, if you buy a gun from an individual, they will have to send it to an FFL also. They can't just hand it off to you. Right. Now, there is something that I remember from days of old, some loophole, gun shows, don't know, never been, Mm -hmm. no idea what that is. But but in general, everything goes through this bottleneck of these people with a special license Mm -hmm. to uh, give you a a controlled firearm. Um, None of that sounds like a cool-off period. Well, but that's the point, Mm -hmm. is if your background check does not get passed immediately then you're effectively... It's effectively a cool-off period. Right. Yeah, it may. I mean, it's a, for some people, it may act as quite the opposite, an <laughs> raging period. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's used to it. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fact is, oddly, the concealed carry permit isn't that hard to get. So people who are interested in buying multiple guns will typically just do that and then they will speed to the front of the queue. But mm-hmm. presumably, if there was something in their background that was alarming. So the some states, Oregon, is what's called a will issue state, which means that although the thing I think goes to the sheriff in the county that you um, you apply, the sheriff will give you a concealed carry permit unless there's a good reason not to. In other words, the presumption is if you apply and you pass the course, you'll get it. Um, And then if there's some reason, like, you know, you lied about having committed a felony or something. I would hope. Right. Then you won't get it. Um, But again, it's it's the TSA pre-model, right? It's the scrutiny has been done ahead of time, and that's why you skip to the head of the queue at Mm -hmm. the point that you actually... It's not that you can skip the scrutiny, but you've... You've paid a little extra. You've taken, and you, and you, yeah, you've thought about it in advance. I mean, like, okay, this is worth this is worth my time to have been vetted, yes, and, and to effectively know. be in the system. And like, to, okay, like I've I've given up a little bit of my privacy here so that, um, so that I have this privilege, privilege that is not. That's why I, 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 it wasn't that I was missing the word. It's like it's a privilege. It's not a right. Yep. It's not a right to skip through the security line at the airport. It's not a right. Right. To um not have your background looked into when you want to purchase a gun. It's it's. A, a privilege to um, have your background looked into and then have basically, you know, stamped on the forehead with like, you're good to go. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> as with TSA pre though, it mm-hmm. involves you submitting your fingerprints. Right. So when you get a... That's why I say you, 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 you hand over some part of your privacy. Right. Well, yeah. you hand that over if you don't have the license and you go to buy a, a weapon, they mm-hmm. will fingerprint you as part of the background check. Right, so your fingerprints make it into the system, but there's no chance. I don't know what they do with the fingerprints at the point you get a concealed carry license. It's quite possible what they do is they compare them to a list of unsolved crimes where they have fingerprints mm-hmm. or something. And well, and or you know, anytime you have said, "Here are my fingerprints," the government. Right. Um, my sense is I have to presume that those fingerprints of mine now exist in some potential federal database. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, I don't presume that they have destroyed them. Right. No, 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 and no. And I, no. don't, I don't like that fact, but, I, you know, you, ha- you have to assume. If you have said, okay, in order to make my life better as I value it with regard to going through airports or owning a gun, I am going to hand you this bit of my privacy with which you can identify me in the future should I, should I choose to do something heinous, okay. Um, in, in that case. But <laughs> right. I think your point is even if you didn't do something heinous, they can still identify you. Right. By by these biometric uh, measures. But right. anyway, it is what it is. Now, all of this raises, as long as we're here, yeah. the uh, interesting and rather complex question of what is now being called ghost guns in yet another phase of our collective catastrophe. I've over... never heard that term. I don't know what that means. <clears throat> so here's the problem. I've told you about the FFL that mm-hmm. is necessary in order for you to buy a gun, mm-hmm. right? Now you have to define gun, Right. Now, the problem is, let's say... It's very Clintonian. Well, I mean, look, this is the problem with the law, is that the law... Sure. If I say, look, in order to buy a gun, you know, you need to pass a background check. And then uh, you say, well, what's a gun? And you say, well, it's the part of the gun that does X, Y, and Z. And, you know, well, let's suppose that you're going to make that part of a gun, right? Like the lower of of a... an AR gun, right? Let's say you're going to make that out of a block of metal. That block of metal will become one of those, but it isn't one yet, right? So the question is, how close 
An individual can't fabricate that with hand tools, right? You no. need like a CNC or That's something, what you need. right? Right. And so there is <clears throat> some group of people that have actually started this as a business, which is they will sell you a piece that is below the threshold where it is mm. not yet a gun, and mm-hmm. they will send, sell you the machine with the program that will turn it into a gun, right? And now you can see how difficult it is to regulate this because the answer is... It kind of reminds me of the mRNA vaccines, actually. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, yeah, you're going to... It's like, yeah. It, I, I see the it's, analogy it's very much in like the that. sense of like, you know, oh, there's yeah. no antigen in this thing. We're going to yeah. make your cell yeah, yeah, produce you just, the thing. You go ahead and make that for yourself. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Huh. So okay. anyway, it's a very interesting thing. And, you know, there is a question of like, oh, well, come on. Okay, that is a gun. Um, yeah, right. On the other hand, at some point it isn't one, and so however you, far you chase the threshold back, right? There's some point at where it isn't. Yep. And yep. you know, is it illegal to exchange, you know, the shape of a gun in a CAD program, right? If you source the billet yourself, and all you have is a computer program that describes what a gun is like, yeah. is that something that requires? You know, so it's very yeah. hard to regulate, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and there's a question about what to do about it. Which is, it, of course, know. what so many of the conservatives have been saying all along to those of us who are like, of course, we need good regulation on all of these things. They're like, yes, but, you know, the devil's in the details. How do you define good? Like, how do you, how do right. you get good, stable, evolutionarily stable regulation? Uh, and in many cases, it's damn near right. impossible. Well, at least can we get rid of these assault weapons? Well, define it, right? You right, know, it, right. The assault weapon basically means rifle that you don't like the looks of. Right, you know, yeah. that that's you know, what are you gonna do about that? Right, right. right? So yes, yeah. it's it's a morass. Yeah, yes. Um, um one more gun comment. Guns aren't the only tool for toppling tyrants. Trucks and bouncy castles work too. It's especially the bouncy castles. It's especially the bouncy castles, and that was so amazing. And unfortunately that dude is still in power up in Canada. What the hell? But okay. Yes. That dude, whoever his father is. Um, the certain individual at this. Oh, this is the certain individual. Mm-hmm. Are you are you sorry that you voted for the certain individual? Is Joe Biden lost lots of sup last month? Yeah, I'm not sorry I voted for him because I never voted for him, and neither did he. Why did neither people of us voted assume for him. that we voted for him? Yeah, never would, never did. Didn't vote for Trump either, but nope. didn't vote for Biden. Never was going to. No way. Didn't no vote how. for Clinton. Uh, you voted for him. You voted for him. No, I didn't. Bill? No, yes, I did. didn't. I did not vote for Bill. Yes, you did. I didn't. I voted for in '92. I didn't vote for. I didn't vote for him. I never voted for Bill. I mean, I can't say a hundred percent, but my recollection is I did not vote for Bill. Not even once. I did vote for Obama once, but not twice. Well, we will. I will not. I will not press this. But well, if you're right, you're right. But uh, that is not my recollection. In any case, if I did vote for Bill, no, then yes, we, I, I am I mean, sorry. We have said, uh, we'll do this off air and maybe come back, but All right. I, 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 I believe I have the receipts on this. Um, wow. All right. If you got them, you got them. I, then, I, then I owe an apology because I think voting for Bill is a terrible thing. I think Bill is the place that the uh, Democratic Party became something other than the representative of working people. For sure. And I did. Uh, once I did not vote for him in '96, but um, uh, 
but we'll, we'll come back to that maybe. Um, the pro-gun argument in one line, predators don't like armed prey. Well, yeah. yes, that's a an argument. On the other hand, um, I, I, frankly, to you gun rights folks, I think you just have to acknowledge that although it is not the only contributing factor, easy access to guns is one of the things that makes these massacres possible. They would not be common otherwise. And it may be one of three or four such contributing factors. And it may be the one that we can't afford because of the downside of not having um, self-protection, as we discussed, and the ability to fend off tyranny should it come. But uh, anyway, I, I think it is a I think it is self-evident that the, the easy access to guns in the U.S. is um, making this environment extremely dangerous and that that is worth acknowledging. Indeed. Okay, so we are trying to just get to these last couple of questions. A couple more just came in, <clears throat> um, but we only had four left. I'll see it um, quickly. Does the following line resonate with you? I'm a conservative of liberal values. I don't think so. No, no, no. That, that, I'm not. I'm not sure what it means. It fits with what we've said, but I'm um, not, I don't know what what it helps. What it fixes. conservatives um, protect the gains of past liberals, right? Liberals are the ones who innovate these things, and then conservatives defend them. But almost all the conservatives that I end up hearing from or talking to say, um, of, "Of course, you know, most of them, many of them now, not most of them, maybe, but many of the ones who I talk to say that they have liberal values." But they say, "I'm like I'm a conservative." Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure this this doesn't feel I don't know. This just doesn't feel right to me. Well, I mean, look, I, I think <clears throat> the whole thing comes down to how. Um, driven to change are you, right? Liberals are inclined to try to solve problems. Conservatives are very sensitive to the unintended consequences of problem solving. They are not necessarily, and in general, are not hostile to problems that have been solved remaining solved, right? So it is, you know, it is a tension between two things. And even at this moment, let's say, you have conservatives trying to conserve all kinds of things that we all agreed on until five minutes ago, but those things are actually the product of a liberalism of the West, right? Yeah, but they're also increasingly a product of the hyper-novelty, which is everyone's fault. Like we have, we have all been running pell-mell into, you know, more and more rapid change. You know, even like the Amish aside, everyone's got a damn phone. Yep. Um, that they are addicted to, pretty much, right? So you could talk all you want about you know, wanting to preserve certain values and be accepting a lot of very crazy, very rapidly changing so-called progress on a lot of fronts, and um, saying that you are, you know, saying that you are in favor of cons of pre-existing of, of already solved problems staying solved right now imagines that we are living in a static world and we are living in the opposite of a static oh, world. Oh, oh. No, I so that, that's that's why I'm objecting to I don't I don't know what you're objecting to. You and I have made the point we can't do that. We can't afford conservatism at the moment because mm -hmm. we can't stay here. There's yeah. nothing to conserve, right? That ship has sailed. We are now in a situation where, yes, there are a lot of values that need to be protected, right? That is maybe inherently the role of conservatives to make sure we don't lose track of who we are and what we believe in and all of that. But we have to architect new 
we have to negotiate things anew because we simply aren't anywhere stable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I totally agree with that. But you know, I, I didn't read that into the question as okay uh, as an issue. Um, three. Oh, well, okay. So quick, the person who asked about the book Holistic Management by Alan Savory wants to know if we take a look at it. From an evolutionary science perspective, um, I've opened it in a tab. That's all I'm going to say. I'll, I'll do at the moment. I have no idea what kind of book it is. Someone says, Citalopram made me lose feeling over half my body for years afterwards. Well, Butrin made me violent. The carnivore diet fixed my major depression. So mm. that's, I, I've, uh, we were talking just yesterday about some of the uh, incredible sensitivities that many people we know have who have had to solve them by putting themselves on extreme elimination diets and then very carefully bringing a few things back, um, mostly nutrient-dense, real food, you know, without, yeah. you know, not highly processed, still highly resembling the organism off an animal that it came from, um, which is different but related to, from, and to the question of whether or not the fancy, very compl molecularly complex pharmaceuticals helped make them crazy in the first place. Um, is there any chance that we should um, confederate all those people with their special diets and call them the Illuminati? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, good. On it. Okay. Three last questions. Um, what data is your mistrust of COVID vaccines based on? Have you written about this? Um, so, so much. We wrote about it a little bit um, a long time ago in, uh, on, I think it's like, <clears throat> it's July, the maybe first or second post on my Substack, uh, which you'll find near the top if you go to, you know, top things on natural selections. It's a very long piece. It's got, a, it's stuff on vaccines. It's stuff on early treatment. A lot of things on how it is that um, data appear to be being manipulated and why why at that point we were concerned. And of course, there is you know ten more months worth of data and analysis out there at this point. And no, neither of us has written explicitly more on it, but um, there is a there is a lot out there. All right, a couple things to add. Yeah. One, um, I would suggest an upgrade to your language. Stop saying data. You're much better off with the word evidence. Right. The problem is data divorced from a context doesn't mean anything. And so it's so frequently abused. So evidence is what you're looking for. The evidence in the VAERS system, in the yellow card system, in the military system. And incidentally, there's a very interesting, I haven't had a chance to go through it in detail, but a very interesting interview with Matthew Crawford, a friend of ours, um, on uh, what appears to be anomalies in the military adverse events yeah, recording system. Yeah. Uh, well worth your time. But anyway, there's tons of evidence, right? There's tons of evidence. And there's also evidence that the system is not at all interested in dealing with the level of adverse events. It's not interested in dealing with people who have these pathologies, which is in and of itself conspicuous, mm -hmm. right? Here, here's the thing. Vaccines have side effects. All drugs do, right? That is not an argument against them. Were it true that these vaccines were safe enough right, and effective enough to deploy them this way, then the system would be very interested in dealing with those small number of people for whom the dice came up wrong, right? Those people did the right thing. They were injured. We should take care of them. The complete lack of interest in acknowledging that these people have even been injured, much less figuring out what to do about them, is indicative of the fact that they do not want us knowing how many there are. 
They would much rather gaslight this huge number of people than allow us to count them and categorize their pathologies and figure out what the pattern is, right? The fact that the system is not interested in these people tells you something is up here, right? What kind mm -hmm. of evidence is that? I'm not exactly sure, but in conjunction with the VAR system and the yellow card system and the military system, it's pretty clear that there's a problem and uh, I would be shocked if any objective person looked at that evidence and came away with any other conclusion. Might plants hedge their bets, producing more potent pollen upon harassment? <clears throat> um, depends on what potent means, but I've written about a related hypothesis um, with regard to um, seed, uh, the, the maple seeds that are produced with regard to the maples here in Portland, uh, feeling like they're much more, they produce much more urticating Samaras than the ones do up in Olympia, just 100 miles north. Uh, the distinction that I noticed that I hypothesize um, being the difference is that uh, Portland is covered in invasive English ivy, uh, whereas Olympia not so much. And that it really feels like in those parts of Portland that are particularly coated in English ivy, the Samaras are particularly urticating and difficult to deal with. Um, that being a certainly labile enough characteristic to change over, um, over the amount of time uh, required to sort of respond to English ivy. Potent. Hold on, I want to come back to your... Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it is possible that something like that could have occurred, for example. Let's say that the ivy um, causes the terrestrial rodent population to go up, and the terrestrial rodents eat the Samaras from maples. So you could then see that the ivy would cause an increase in the seeds defending themselves against being consumed by rodents with this urticating stuff on their surface, something like that. Yeah. Um, Okay, you were going to go on to the pollen. Um, I'll just say here, Zach, if you want to just show my screen for a second. This was, I guess, back in October um, on maple trees and tree frogs protecting themselves. This is, um, this is where I talked about this explicitly. Um, if I may have my screen back because I don't remember what Brett you think I was going to say. Oh, just the question was, might plants hedge their bets producing more potent pollen upon harassment? Um, you know, potent meaning what? Like the idea that I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, th I think I, I think the question potent is, isn't quite right. Is phrased in a, in too blunt a way, but I would mm -hmm. say you would expect plants to have um, measures of parameters that mattered, right? In other words, what ought to predict a plant producing more pollen? Well, if the recipient plants are widely uh, spaced, then producing more pollen might be necessary in order to successfully reproduce. So a greater fraction of the budget might be dedicated to it. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a question about how a tree might know that, and it could know that from evolutionary history. In other words, uh, if it is in a very sparsely divided forest, you know, if you have a rare tree in a forest, for example, yeah. then it is in a population in which that species is rare. And so producing more pollen might simply be favored, mm -hmm. right? You could have things like that, but you could also have a responsive system that would detect, you know, we, we have plants that do, that flower, for example, when they're about to die, right? As a last ditch effort to convert what they've got into some kind of reproduction, Right, and so anyway, you could imagine all kinds of strategies that would enhance the fitness of plants, and increasing pollen output in response to some of them would be natural. Right, yep. I mean, maybe even 
the wetness of the season, mm-hmm. right? If your pollen sure. is going to get washed uh, into the stream and be useless, then maybe you need to produce more of it, or you need to, you know, you could be. If sensitive. we're talking about uh, wind pollination, or if you if you got a vector a pollinator, oh, I'm thinking about wind. But yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, all of these parameters change what yep. what exactly you predict. Yep. Um, final question for today. Do you have thoughts on the PC rebranding of homeless to unhoused or houseless? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, lots. And um, frankly, and this is something we didn't quite explicitly get to um, in the first in the first part of today's stream. Uh, this is something that Schellenberger talks a lot about in his book, San Francisco, San Francisco. I can't even say it. Um, in which he, and I don't remember exactly when, but he says basically that the term homeless was first was basically was moved in as the way that we would now refer to this population of people by activists and proponents of the homeless, if you will, as a way to uh, to make them seem less other. And furthermore, what that then did was make it seem like, well, the way that you solve homelessness is to provide homes. Because once you named a group based on one thing that they don't have, it would appear that the solution is to rectify the one thing that you don't have for which the group has been named. Whereas if you had called them, um, you know, people, you know, transients, for instance, which sounds like homelessness, but actually it points to the lack of a sense of place, lack of a sense of home, lack of localness. Um, there is a different set of issues. And of course, if you talk about mentally ill or drug addicted or any number of, or, you know, people who um, are, you know, had one major life event that that made meant that they couldn't pay their, their rent, uh, that is, you know, again, a different kind of subclass of people who we're now largely calling homeless. So this does strike me as along the lines of um, person of color, people of color, where, you know, we the, the NAACP uh, is not a racist organization, right? Um, but we are no... Maybe now, but... It, it, it may be now, I don't know. But the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, um, uses the phrase colored people in its name, uh, which we are, of course, not allowed to say anymore because somehow to say colored person is racist, but to say person of color is not. This feels exactly like that. It's a, it's a way of keeping people on their toes and to change it up and to make sure that you are... It's It's fashion, it's like it's woke, um, totalitarian fashion policing. Uh, no, it's it's cryptic control. Yeah, the idea that's, is that you need the authoritarian part. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. The point is you need to be up on what's yeah. in and what's out, and it's all arbitrary. That's the fashion part. From with respect to uh, what's actually being said, and I think it was Ricky Gervais in the special that we watched <laughs> um, makes the point. That the terms that are now no longer allowed are terms that were actually used as euphemisms in order to, you know, to neutralize some kind of bigotry that was real or imagined, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, I have no patience for this. Yeah. The fact is... The unhoused. <laughs> right. The dehoused. Um, <laughs> right. The point is, look, yes, there are offensive terms for things. Yes, we shouldn't use those terms, but we should just figure out what the terms are that are, allow us to have a conversation, mm-hmm. and we should shut the authoritarians out of those conversations so that the adults can talk. I'm not right. Saying... If, if your primary contribution to a conversation is, oh, don't say it that way, you probably don't have very much to add. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you should be allowed to say what you want, but in yeah. a conversation where we're trying to figure out what to do, mm-hmm. somebody who's not really interested in that but is interested in using it as an excuse for something doesn't belong there. Indeed. 
All right. Well, this has been long, but uh, but it was a long time. I mean, we were here two days ago, but before that, it was a long time and a lot of a lot of miles traveled. Yep, um, indeed. We will be back in a week. You same time, say same it place. Like the Terminator. I don't know how the Terminator says that. I believe we'll be back. I see. We'll also be back here, sitting in these very seats in. Um, in less than 24 hours for the private Q&A on, on my Patreon. You can find it there. Uh, there will be a link up shortly at 11 a.m. on Sunday, May, that's going to be 29th. And uh, then we will be back in a week in June. In June. June, that sounds so much sunnier. It does. It does sound so much sunnier. Yeah. Uh, but until then, until then, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well. Be well.